Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. Our next guest for Season 2 is the surgeon, author and social justice advocate, Dr. Neela Janakaramanan. Dr. Janakaramanan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Call me Neela. Thanks, Neela. For those of our listeners who may not know you, would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Neela. I am trained as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon uh, who has picked up probably a few too many hobbies along the way. Um, my subspecialty interest is hand and wrist surgery, uh, so I did a couple of years of fellowship training in that uh, after I finished my basic plastic surgery training, and it's probably most of my work uh, these days. I work publicly at Eastern Health, um, where I'm the clinical lead for hand surgery um, and probably do all the stuff that none of the other plastic surgeons want to do, um, and, uh, and I do some private work as well. Um, I've also done uh, both advocacy and operational work uh, with refugees um, with helping coordinate the medical community's response to the Kids Off Nauru campaign uh, and the Medivac legislation. So we did um, a lot of the assessments, uh, the health assessments for refugees offshore and I do a bit of writing as well. So I've done some opinion writing over the last few years, predominantly for an online magazine called Women's Agenda, which I think is a great uh, follow for anyone who wants a uh, slightly women's and feminist uh, take on current events, both from a local and a global perspective. Um, and I've also written a novel, which is uh, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and I didn't win, that's okay. Um, making the shortlist was pretty cool. Um, but hopefully that means it'll get published at some point. So that's pretty exciting. I agree, they are some pretty exciting, I'd probably call them more than just hobbies. Neela, we like to start with a few warm-up questions. So firstly, can you take us through your day today? Have you had a typical day for you? Uh, yeah, probably typical. So today I was in um, public um, and on alternate Mondays I do a morning clinic at Marinda Hospital, which is one of the Eastern Health campuses, and I, in the afternoon I do a public clinic at Box Hill Hospital. I only operate at Box Hill Hospital um, simply because of the complexity of what I do. It requires specific equipment and uh, it was just easier to consolidate that at one hospital. But um, we do, the network has a lot of patients who live out east and a lot of the hand injuries and traumas uh, do arise in people who live uh, in the peripheries of our city. Um, and that's, that's universal. You, you'll find that the big hand trauma centres are, you know, the Northern Hospital, the Western Hospital, Dandenong, Frankston, uh, and for us, Maroondah. Um, and so, so I do go and do an outpatients clinic there um, just to make it easier for the patients. So you mentioned a few of your medical and uh, social justice hobbies. What are some of your other skills and talents completely outside of medicine? Um, so it's really interesting because I think, I think a lot of people give up their, hob their true hobbies and skills and talents to get through medical training. And I was certainly one of those people who, you know, from the time I was a medical student to the time I got my fellowship exam, uh, I don't think I, I, I did anything other than medicine. And I certainly don't think that this is a good thing. I think it's just kind of the reality. But 
the great thing is once you finish you do have the time to find these other things so uh, my big thing that I picked up after I became a consultant was I started learning the flute um, it was something I'd always wanted to do and a couple of years ago having listened to me say how much I wanted to play the flute for about 20 years my husband bought me a flute and organized the lessons and made the time for me to go on a Saturday morning uh, so that's something that I've been doing for the last couple of years I also have three children that takes up a lot of time I can only imagine so Neela what's one thing in your life that you can't live without sleep I've had three babies I have three children uh, I had two of those babies during surgical training when you don't get a lot of sleep anyway and I just I'm allergic to being tired it it gives me flashbacks and makes my heart race and just the idea of not getting enough sleep now makes me feel quite unwell so sleep is number one on my thing list of things that I want to do what are your, are your top tips do you, are you pretty onto sleep hygiene and all that I'm terrible I I go to bed with my phone and I'm absolutely dreadful with it but I'm very lucky in that I don't actually have that much trouble falling asleep um, the biggest barrier to sleeping is that I get over-involved in my so-called hobbies and so you know most of 2020 20, 2019 sorry was spent late nights doing a second job in refugee health assessment work um, there wasn't a lot of sleep that year and at the moment I'm not getting very much sleep because I'm working very hard on my manuscript to get it ready to send to publishers so so I am my own worst enemy but I'm definitely not having more babies because they steal sleep more than anything else. Well, I'm very much looking forward to talking about all of those hobbies. As a final warm-up question, if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why? I've always wanted to be an arborist. And, and in fact, you know, when I was going to bars many, many, many years ago, you know, you, boys wouldn't talk to you if you said you're a medical student or a doctor um, and in fact I had a boyfriend the whole time so and who's now my husband um, but so but I used to tell people that I was an arborist because it, it, it amused me to say that so I, I reckon that'd be pretty fun I do now have uh, a block of bushland and I do have a chainsaw which is a odd choice for a plastic surgeon and a hand surgeon um, but but yeah let's say let's say that arborist well I'm, I'm very impressed in order to understand more about you and, and the surgeon and the person that you are, um, I'd like to chat first a bit about your background and your upbringing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? Mm. So I, I had a really varied um, childhood. I was born in India. Um, my grandfather was a rural GP surgeon. I left India when I was just shy of two. Um, and went to the US with my parents. Uh, my dad was doing a PhD. In fact, he was doing a second PhD um, in Minnesota. Um, his first PhD was in mining. His second was in finance. And I, I spent most of my childhood in the US, um, predominantly in upstate New York. Uh, and my dad, being a typical um, academic, uh, just moved universities a few times and then was offered a job at the University of Melbourne so we came to Melbourne and I did high school here and I got into university so I went to Monash uh, to study medicine and at the very start of my first year he got offered a job in Singapore uh, for a year um, and so my parents and my sister who was nine at the time they packed up and went to Singapore for a year my parents are still there 
I stayed because I'd gotten into medical school. My parents really wanted me to transfer to Singapore, but yeah, it was all too difficult and I'd met a boy. And so, so I stayed. So in terms of your own childhood and interests growing up, what sort of things were you involved in and interested in? Were you, did medicine come into it early at all? Or uh, I was a total nerd. Um, I read a lot. I, uh, I played, played the clarinet and the violin and I did some traditional Indian singing. Um, the first operation I watched was when I was eight. I was telling someone about this the other day and now that I look back, you know, looking at my eight-year-old, I can't believe anyone let me, let me go into that theatre. But we were in India and, um, and my grandfather's, and this was actually fairly typical, um, so he had his house and then he had his clinic immediately behind the house. Um, and so he had a clinic and then he had four uh, inpatient beds, in inverted quotes, they were just little rooms, um, and then he had a little operating theatre. And he didn't do anything overly complicated. He did, um, you know, tonsils and vasectomies and hernias and lance abscesses and that, that sort of thing. Um, and he was still using ether anesthesia. Um, he didn't have an anesthetist in the town. And so he trained up a fairly clever person who administered the ether. So he would count out the drops of ether that got dripped onto the mask. And, you know, the patient would move a little bit and he'd say, oh, you know, two more drips of ether, however it was that he did it. Um, he didn't have a nurse, and so my grandmother, he trained my grandmother to assist him. She would um, go and do lists with him, um, and they had their own little steriliser, and, you know, theatre day was, you know, don't bother them. Anyway, so so we went, and we, we actually stayed in India for about three months that time. Um, Mum and Dad pulled me out of school. It was my other grandfather's 80th birthday, which is a big deal in India. And so... And that was great. That was, for me, was a really life-changing trip, you know, actually being able to, to live there, uh, get a sense of, like really get a sense of the language, the culture, um, understand what, what India was. Um, so anyway, about six weeks into this trip, I was just like, I, I want to watch an operation. I want to watch an operation. I want to, and so finally they're like, oh, fine, okay, you can come and watch an operation. Uh, and it was a tonsillectomy, and I think I lasted about three minutes before I fainted, and someone had to pick me up off the ground and had to take me back into the house. Um, and I maintain to this day that it was just the fumes from the ether that made me pass out. So, so I, I kind of medicine always danced at the edges, but it wasn't a hundred percent sold. I really liked writing. I did a lot of writing as a as a kid. Um, enjoyed creative writing. Wrote some poetry. Um, won, you know, a silver medal in some sort of contest once. Like, you know, just, just normal kid stuff. And uh, and my parents, uh, atypical for your traditional Indian parents, actually didn't encourage me to do medicine. And if anything, they were fairly discouraging. My aunt, who lived in London um, and was an obstetrician, had a really difficult time um, with racism and sexism and and, and lots of issues. Um, and so they were just like, why would you want to do that? Um, so, so anyway, I, we sort of went round and round in circles. And by the time I was in year 12, I was like, look, I think I really want to do medicine. And they're like, well, fine, if you want to do it, fine. We're not going to stop you, but have you really thought about it? Uh, and I spent some time with my careers counsellor. And in the end, you know, my preferences at the end of year 12 was medicine at Monash, medicine at Melbourne, and then journalism. And then below that, I put, you know, your biomedical science and your science and everything else. And my careers counsellor had a fit about it. She's just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, but, but I don't want to do science. I don't want to do medical science, biomedical science. If I don't get into medicine, I'd rather 
do writing. She was like, that just doesn't make sense. I'm like, well, you don't have to sign off on this. You know, this is my decision. I actually sat the um, journalism entry exam at RMIT and I will never know if I got in or not because I got into medicine. There you go. Have you ever seriously regretted your choice of going into medicine? I think I said that I was going to leave every single year. Uh, at the end of first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, sixth year, intern year, resident years, and absolutely in every single registrar year, until it got to a point where it just, it was just too late. Like there was just, it was, you know, I would be taking such a big backward step uh, to leave, which which is why I think my, my hobbies that got out of hand um, are so important to me because it was never the full total of my identity and I always thought it was problematic for all sorts of reasons. The, the core business of medicine, of assessing people who are unwell and making them better is fantastic, um, but the system that we have built around that, and I don't even necessarily mean at a, at a, at a Melbourne level or an Australian level, I mean really at an international level, is, is deeply problematic. Um, and there were just, I just, I got very emotional about the things that I didn't like. And I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm still here. Um, so yes, I almost left many times um, to the point where, you know, I was applying for business and law and all this sort of stuff, but I just, I never quite took that step. That's really interesting to hear that perspective compared to, I think, many surgeons who would say it almost is their identity and their be all and end all. Do you think that your thoughts of frustration perhaps at the system, not that there's a right answer or a wrong answer, but do you think maybe staying in the system and trying to change it from within is what you've tried to do or is an answer? I think it is an answer. I think that it is necessary. I think it is incumbent upon everyone who has the capacity um, to improve it, to try and improve it, acknowledging that not everyone has the capacity. Some people, you know, they're just trying to keep their head above water and that's totally fine as well. Um, and, you know, there are times in my life when I'm just trying to keep my head above water. And, and so there's, there's a season for everything. Um, so, yes, I, I, for me, I would not be comfortable within medicine if I wasn't trying to improve it. Um, I think... That, that that version of practice where you turn up to work, you count your cash at the end, you buy a big house and you go on nice holidays. Oh, I don't think I could do that. Um, I think that I would, I, I, the moral injury that that would cause for me, I think I would find it intolerable. So you mentioned uh, getting into med school rather than journalism and you were residential uh, at Monash, or you were living in uh, Melbourne, going to Monash Uni. What was that experience like? What were you like as a med student? They were the glory days. They were absolutely fantastic. So um, my parents moved overseas uh, three quarters of the way through my first year at university. That was when youth allowance and the cost of living were not entirely on par, but not as far apart as they are now. My university share house is, you know, or the share houses that I lived in, plural, are just some of the best experiences. And, you know, I look at the price of accommodation now and I look at my kids and I'm like, I don't know that you're ever going to be able to experience that. We 
sat on the front doorstep and drank coffee and smoked for breakfast and we you know we had this really dodgy back window in our share house um, which all of our friends knew you know how to jig this dodgy window so we'd come home there'd be someone playing xbox on our on our sofa when we got home from school and we drank and we played board games and I did a lot of debating at university um, I was very involved uh, in the debating club I was the president probably the only medical student who's ever been president of the debating club who knows um, and so you know I went into varsities uh, it was just I did not a lot of study um, my medical school marks are fine they are not excellent but you know for everything that came afterwards, the amount of work that was required, the amount of study that needed to be done, the number of sacrifices that needed to be made um, in specialist training, I'm really glad I blew off medical school and had fun because I don't think I would have been able to sustain that for 15 years. It was fine for six or seven whatever it was but but if it had been the whole time along um, I think I would have burnt out either burnt out or what happens to a lot of other people is they just can't see another way um, you I think you forget what it's like to be a real person I was talking to my literary agent the other day that's such a wanky thing to say um, and you know we were talking about surgeons and she was saying oh you know surgeons you know they work these long hours and they build these high rates and you know they build, they buy these huge houses like clearly they're rolling in it you know what happens do you get to 50 and retire and like start smoking cocaine and like going on holidays i'm like no they just keep working and she's like even stockbrokers take cocaine and have fun like what are you surgeons doing like okay forget the cocaine what about going to the beach and plunging in the surf what about going to the forest and lying on the ground and looking up at the trees you know there's moments of pure joy when do people find that and i'm just like i don't think they do i really don't think a lot of them do i know some of my colleagues who don't do that um and so that that's what I would say about medical school. It was pure joy. It was just, it was everything that is good about being a young person. That's so refreshing to hear from someone, I'm sure, um, either a lot of doctors and surgeons in particular don't live that sort of way or maybe don't want to admit that they do yeah. or, or they wish they do perhaps. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. You spoke a little bit about the hard work and the drive that a lot of surgeons have a lot of doctors but but yeah certainly surgeons by reputation what do you think comes first do you think you need that drive to be a surgeon or do you think the training program shapes you in such a way that you can only come out if you really make that those sacrifices i think it's probably a bit of both i think it comes down to well firstly you've got to make a decision that you want to do surgery so you need a motivator that motivator can be all sorts of stuff. Uh, and the one thing I will say, surgery is a cult. You know, you get completely brainwashed within it. Um, it's, my husband says this a lot. I don't even notice this, but he, he is not medical. Um, and he says to me, you know, I come to these conferences and I sit next to these people and it's like, you can't ever get out. This is, this is, 
the best thing that anyone could be. A surgeon is the greatest thing anyone could be. And no one can understand why you would choose to be anything other than a surgeon because this is just fundamentally the best. And being non-medical, he's tried to get people to break down. Well, why is this so wonderful? And th there's no clear answer. It is, but 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 it just is. It just like there's no other pathway to be closer to God than being a surgeon. Um, and and I would agree with that a little bit. So I do think that for some people that probably provides a degree of motivation. This this sense of this being a um, the most exclusive club. In fact, I've worked with a surgeon who used to say that um, the College of Surgeons in on Spring Street should set up a bar, like and be like you know the Melbourne Club or whatever, because becoming a surgeon was literally the most exclusive club in town. And and like this was said without irony. He literally wanted there to be a bar at the College of Surgeons that only surgeons could go to, because if you're going to go into the city, why wouldn't you just want to just sit at the College of Surgeons? and have, you know, drink whiskey or something. I don't know. So, so I do think that there is that. I think as a, a profession, we really do give our juniors, medical students, the sense that what we do is amazing. Um, for me, my motivation, oh, I don't know where it came from because, you know, I, was, I, I really loved life as a, as a medical student. I, I went to Cambodia for my elective. It was a surgical hospital. It was an, orthoped it was an Alaskan uh, orthopedic surgeon who did reconstructive orthopedic surgery. Um, and so they had this charity hospital. Uh, they did a lot of, um, they did club feet. They did um, osteotomies for malunions. Uh, they also had an ophthalmologist who did some cataracts. They also had a plastic surgeon who did clefts. And yeah, and, and they did some acute orthopedic trauma work as well. Um, it was just it was just fascinating i just loved it and the the first uh couple of days that i was there i met this girl uh she would have been about 16. um so you know at the time not that much younger than i was um and in cambodia in a lot of places they lived in raised houses and so she had fallen out of this house and broken her leg when she was three years old and we were seeing her at 16 with this um, significant malunion of one of her legs. It was like a Z. Uh, and she hadn't walked since she was three for this reason. Um, and so the first, in that first few days I was there, we did an osteotomy, straightened it all out, put some plates on. Uh, and I was there for six weeks. And at the end of that six weeks, she was allowed to stand up and she walked. And she took a few steps and it was the first time she'd walked since she was three. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I want to be able to do that. And my, so towards the end of my time there, my now husband, then boyfriend came and joined me in Cambodia with one of his friends. And we traveled overland from Cambodia through Thailand and Malaysia down to Singapore where my parents were. Um, anyway, he turned up and we went out for dinner the first night and I said, okay, we need to talk. And he went, all right. And I said, I have something to tell you. And he said, who did you sleep with? I said, no, 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 no. Um, I think I want to do surgery. And he went, oh yeah, whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 really, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. And he's like, oh, whatever, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. You know, that's great. And, and you know, and he has, bless him. Um, but I did ask him not that long ago after telling this anecdote on something similar. Um, I said, do you regret that? And he went, oh, and there was silence. Um, what you can see that your listeners can't is me making a lot of faces. And he said, I actually didn't know what we were in for. 
And so it wasn't a no. No, no, he doesn't regret it. But neither of us really knew what we were in for at that point. Um, so, so that was my little bit of motivation. And so, so I was going to do orthopedics, and then there's a long rambly story about how I became a plastic surgeon instead. But now I've now I do mostly upper limb surgery, which is sort of half orthopedics. So, you know, it's interesting to hear the stories about uh, your boyfriend and now husband, who's non-medical. Do you think that has been a really you know you kind of speak about the cult of surgeons do you think being married to someone completely outside the circle is really grounding for you and kind of shows you what the inside is like a little bit um i couldn't i I don't think i have all respect for two doctor families i don't know how they do it i'm not sure that i could um he is quite possibly the most cynical person you will ever meet um his degree he did arts law at university there was a lot of literature and there was a lot of philosophy and he he, he, we've now come full circle he uh, spent a few years working in public health policy um, and now predominantly does public health related research has gone back to uni and done a biostats degree so he's also a biostatistician so so in some ways I think my health background has informed some of his career choices as well and we've sort of ended up sort of coming close together rather than further apart but yes he he was always very eyes wide open about the world of surgery the norms of surgery um it's it's interesting i we have these conversations where i say to him things like oh my god how do my colleagues have like you know bigger houses than us and like I don't really mean it like I'm perfectly happy with our dodgy little townhouse in Fitzroy but the answer to that is debt by the way um and and he will turn around and say yeah but that's because you're comparing yourself to surgeons I hang out with like academics and school mums in the playground and you know you know they were in the top five percent of income earners in this country and I'm like yeah okay yes 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 we are and I think that that perspective is important to keep you know I I think they did a study a few years ago where they looked at people in the top five percent and asked them particularly in the range of ten to five percent and they said where do you class yourself and almost everyone said they were middle class almost everyone said that they were sitting at the you know the 50th percentile that that sort of thing Um, and so we in medicine we get so siloed we we are siloed from everyone else in university well a we go to university which is already a big step lots of people don't and then we we are this little corner of the university and we don't we don't talk to anyone else who does anything else and then we split off into hospital medicine versus community medicine and then even within hospital medicine we split off into you know our little specialties and then our subspecialties and then our single institution where you know one person is the right foot surge like we, we become so siloed and that's where our friends are we're like we're friends with other doctors we are married to other doctors our family members are other doctors and particularly as Australia has become more inequitable and getting into medical school is even harder now than it used to be 
the socioeconomic, you know, our parents were doctors as well. Our grandparents, were, you know, so it just it perpetuates this this siloing, and so we lose complete perspective of what it's like to actually just be a normal person. Apart from being married to a non-medical person, how else do you think people can keep their perspective on on their privileged life? Um, I think having children does that, but only only to a certain extent. Um, you know, one of the big motivators for me for not, you know, being that surgeon who works 120 hours a week is was having kids. I would, you know, I suddenly realised that standing in the park on a Tuesday afternoon, it's really nice. And you think, well, if I was working instead and I bought a Porsche with that money, would it give me as much joy as standing in the park on a Tuesday afternoon? And the answer is no. But if you've never stood in a park on a Tuesday afternoon, you don't know how enjoyable it is. And so therefore it is very easy to fall down that pathway of, I'm gonna borrow money for this house and then I'm gonna borrow money for my Porsche and then I'm gonna borrow money for my fancy holiday and then I'm gonna borrow money for this thing. And then, oh shit, I have all of this debt. Like debt is cheap at the moment. Interest rates are relatively low. And what that means is that if you take out a million dollars in debt, you actually don't have to pay that much interest. And so at that point, you actually can just have huge amounts of debt that you're not actually ever intending really to pay off. Like you've got this giant house and then you're going to sell this house before you ever have to pay off the mortgage. So all you're doing is servicing debt but you can end up in a position where you're so over leveraged that you can't ever stop working because if you work less you can't service the debt and then you're stuck and that's i think something to avoid so so that's one thing i would say is um for women i think it's easy to get that experience of learning what it's like not to be at work all the time i think it's harder for men um that said i do think men of your generation are doing a better job of being involved with family child rearing actually wanting to be part of their children's lives um, maintaining other hobbies things like that um, so I think that's one way to do it um, it maintaining a diverse group of friends maintaining interests outside of medicine so a lot of my university friends you know I have my doctor friends but I also have my debating friends and amongst my debating friends, you know, there's a bunch of lawyers, but there's also people who, who uh, worked in government, who have worked in policy, who have um, written books. Like, like it's actually just quite a diverse group of people. Um, and the last thing I would say is talk to your patients. You mentioned having children there, a short hypothetical for you. Your children turn around and say they want to do medicine. How do you respond? I've thought about this a lot. Um, fortunately, two out of three will not study medicine. Uh, my elder two have shown no interest in it whatsoever. The, the, the third, he's only four, he might yet show interest. Look, I, I think I would take a similar attitude to my parents, which is um, I don't think I would encourage them, uh, but I don't think I would discourage them per se either. Um, and you know, medicine's not the only difficult uh, job. You know, there are lots of you know, lots of professional positions demand a lot of people in their twenties and thirties. So we're moving towards your junior years as a doctor. It seems your heart was kind of being directed towards surgery um, after your seminal trip to Cambodia. Did that? 
shape a lot of the opportunities that you sought out as a junior doctor and the type of rotations that you did? Yeah, I approached in a very methodical sort of way. I Final year of medical school, I did predominantly um, surgical uh, terms as much as I could. Um, so I did a fair bit of general surgery and a fair bit of um, uh, orthopaedic surgery. Um, so I went to theatre a lot. One, probably one of the most seminal conversations I had as a final year student was uh, I was working down in Frankston and I had a registrar who was great. He was really, really, really good. Um, he was a final year general surgical trainee and he just wanted to do vascular surgery. And he had applied on a number of occasions and not gotten in. And this was going to be his last attempt because he was also about to sit his fellowship exam in general surgery. And he uh, didn't get in. And he was still like, I just want to do it. And so I remember having this coffee in the cafe at Frankston um, where the other general surgery trainee who was also a final year was just like, dude, you haven't done the work. And he's like, what, what, what? And he's, you know, sputtering. And she's like, look, you, like your CV is crap. You haven't done the research. Like you don't have the research points. Of course you didn't get in. And he's like, but, 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 you know, but I'm a good trainee and like, I'm a good, yeah. She's like, yeah, yeah, but you've got to tick all the boxes. Um, anyway, the story has a happy ending because he got a second round offer and became a vascular surgeon and is, is great. But for me, that was a really seminal kind of moment where I was like, oh, there's boxes. I've got to tick those boxes. And so as an intern, um, I got the application form such that it was then and it changed every year then and it has changed every year now. And, and back then it was the old basic surgical training program. And so you had to sit your first part surgical exam in order to... Um, apply for surgical training and so as an intern I was like right I need research points and then I discovered that uh, I was an intern uh, at Southern Health um, so Monash, Dandenong, um, I did two terms in the country um, which I loved out at Trailgan um, and what I discovered is that clinical surgeons are not very good at conceiving of research or doing research or providing a support structure where research is done but physicians were really good at that um, and I was like right I want to do orthopedics and so I found a rheumatologist um, who worked at the Alfred uh, Flavia Cicatini who has a great research group she's still working um, and they they had tons of data and they just handed me some papers to write and so I got some research points that way I was really crap at it and so one day Flavia who was also coordinating the Masters of Public Health at the time, I said to her, do you think that would be helpful? And she's like, yeah, totally. Um, and so she handed me a Commonwealth supported spot and signed me up. And so I did that part time during my resident and I finished it uh, at the end of my unaccredited registrar year, I think from memory. Um, but it was a really, oh, I remember the year before I applied for surgical training, I was, I was a, two years before, I was a third year resident, I was doing the uh, surgical anatomy diploma thing at Monash, um, I, I was also demonstrating anatomy, um, I did a little bit of that that year. And I was doing some private assisting of a surgeon who did a lot of hand surgery. Um, and I was 
had started this master's and I was studying for my first part exam. And so I remember there's this one particular period where I would go to work, work all night, doing nights, and then come home and sleep for four hours and then study and then work all night and come home and sleep for four hours and go to a master's lecture in the afternoon and then work all night and come home and sleep for four hours and then private assist and then work all night, come home and then study for my first part exam. Like it was just, I was just working so hard to tick these boxes. Um, and it was just, it was all a bit of a disaster. But uh, the surgeon I was assisting offered me an unaccredited plastics job, um, which I applied for, and the interviews were a couple of weeks before the orthopedics ones. And I was like, no, 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 like, fine, I'll, I'll apply because you really want me to, but I still want to do orthopedics. And so I applied for both of them, and then the plastics guys offered me an unaccredited job, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just do that, fine. Uh, I'll do that for a year, and then I'll go and do orthopedics. Um, and then I started... Um, as the registrar and they said hey why don't you you know why don't you just try applying for plastics so I was like oh no but I don't want to do it no, no, no I just try um and because I ticked all of those bloody boxes they put me on the training program and I went oh, oh well <laughs> the training program and the hand is worth two in the bush so I may as well may as well become a plastic surgeon um but there were lots of aspects of plastic surgery that I didn't didn't really want to pursue full-time I didn't really want to do a whole lot of breast surgery I didn't really want to do a whole lot of head and neck surgery they were just I, I was really not interested in the cosmetic side of things at all um, and so once I finished that's that's when I went and did my fellowships in hand surgery you make it sound a lot easier than I'm sure it was um, sounds like you were working very hard at that point in time just to unpick a few of those things we chat about. Um, firstly, in terms of the training programs and the requirements and the tick box, ex tick yeah. box exercise that you, you mentioned, do you think that is necessarily on parallel with what actually makes a good clinician or a good surgeon down the track? And if not, whose problem is that? It absolutely doesn't. We know that systems that select on the basis of merit are discriminatory they discriminate against women they discriminate against races they discriminate against any number of characteristics that humans uh, like to discriminate on the basis of um, the the thing that makes a good doctor ultimately is understanding your patient um, your people don't have diseases you're not treating a disease you're treating a person with that disease and you can be the best orthopedic surgeon on the planet, technically, you know, able to put in a, you know, a joint replacement better, faster, stronger than anyone else. But if you don't understand the implications for that patient in terms of um, what they can't do, why they need it, how they're going to walk up the stairs when they get home, who's going to take care of them, this whole context, the outcomes are not going to be very good. And so we can't all understand everyone else we can try to but there is a degree of walking in people's steps that gives you a greater insight into what their experiences are and so therefore the ideal health system actually has clinicians doctors nurses theater techs whatever that actually reflect the population that they are serving and at the moment 
um, the way we select medical students doesn't reflect that and the way we select trainees for specialty training programs doesn't necessarily reflect that either. Um, was sleeping four hours a night so that I could do five things all at once, did that make me a better doctor? No. Um, my master's public health was great. I think that definitely did make me a better doctor. Um, the assisting made me a better junior registrar for a period of time, but if I hadn't done it, I would have gotten those skills some other way. Um, anatomy school was fine, but it was just the requirement that people do all of these things. You know, we demand research of people, but the vast majority of research that gets published is rubbish. We, we, we actually shouldn't ask people to do crappy research. It's a waste of, you know, everyone's time and energy. Why not just say, you're a really caring person, you spend a lot of time talking to your patients and that's a really valuable skill. Forget about that PhD that you don't even enjoy. How about we, we select you because you're fantastic at communication, for example. So you mentioned your Masters of Public Health, which, um, as you said, you were very busy while you were doing that. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to do that work and, and why you enjoyed that, and then also how that's maybe changed or informed your practice still today. Um, so, so I did it accidentally. Almost everything I've done in my life, I've done accidentally. Um, uh, so I got in accidentally, and I chose subjects that were in part related to health equity and in part related to research. Health equity stuff, I really enjoyed um, and I wrote a my thesis was on the importance of surgery uh, in uh, poor in resource poor um, developing contexts the other thing surgery does very effectively as a profession is it almost divorces itself from the rest of medicine a little bit you know we are the surgeons there is this one technical problem we are going to fix this bit of this person and then someone else is going to fix all those other bits um, whereas I think I walked away from my MPH seeing myself as a surgeon as an important part of the health system that's really interesting to hear you've now been a consultant for around five years I think and we heard a lot about the, the different work you do specialising in upper limb um, surgery. Do you think, we chatted a little bit earlier about your motivation and what kind of kept you going through all of that. Do you think your motivation has changed over the years? Hmm, I don't know. Um, I feel like I don't need to be motivated to go to work anymore. Um, I've gotten to a point where I only do the work I enjoy and that I'm good at. I only work in the places where I like working. And so it's that bit of my life almost runs itself. Um, it's not difficult, it doesn't stress me out. Um, and so I think, yeah, from a motivational point of view, it's a bit different. So so, so it, does, it does then allow me to draw back to really like hands. I really like giving people their function back. My, my favorite bit of my job is every single person who walks into this room and sits down in that chair. So my rule is, you know, because when you go and see the doctor, you think about what you're gonna say. Like it's a big deal to go and see a doctor and there is something you're trying to communicate to them to convince them that you really have a problem. And 
you know, from my point of view, someone can walk in and I can tell from across the room that they've got carpal tunnel or they've got some decur veins or whatever. But from a patient's point of view, they're worried that I might not believe them. And so they come in with a little spiel. And every single person who walks in here, they say, I've got X wrong with me, blah, 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 blah. And they always finish the sentence with, and my hands are really important to me because... And that's what I wait for because I love that because that because tells me what they what is important to them as a person. It'll be something occupational. It will be something hobby related. It might be sport. It might be a caring duty. It might it could be anything, but there is a because, and that's what I love about hand surgery is that they can't they come in here because they can't do that because. And I give them the ability to do that because, and that's great. And so I guess that's why I became a doctor all those years ago. And in the intervening time to get to this point, you have to find motivations in odd places because the road is difficult. But once you finish, you can actually draw back to that core, core belief. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And definitely for the younger medical students junior doctor listeners a real almost light at the end of the tunnel um in terms of kind of the magic that you can do as a as a doctor and as a surgeon we chatted earlier about some of your hobbies and um i'm looking forward to chatting about a few of them um in the last section now firstly you mentioned your passion for writing and journalism um, and you are an author in a number of places um, the first one I'm going to ask about is the, the newspaper that I know you've written for a little bit, in, in particular during COVID. Mm. How do you see media more generally or, or in particular the newspaper as kind of an outlet for uh, medical information and factual news, particularly, you know, in our, our fake news kind of era? It's a really good question. Um, I'll tell you how I started writing. Um, I, I was having a coffee with a friend uh, who is an actual journalist, um, her name is Christina Zavika, she's delightful, and we were having, I was having a bit of a whinge about, I can't even necessarily remember the issue now, but it was about how female doctors were portrayed. Um, There was something that was happening at the time that had annoyed me and someone, I don't know, maybe from the college, maybe from somewhere else, had stood up and said something and it hadn't quite hit the mark. And I was just like, you know, that's really relevant for those people over there, but it's not relevant for us because blah, 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 blah. And she was, you know, she was sort of playing with a dog and sipping her coffee and kind of looking off into space and she said... You know, Neela, if you if you're worried that you know the representation of you know this particular group that you belong to isn't spot on, uh, because other people aren't doing it right, you, you know that you've just got to do it yourself. And I kind of went, oh yeah, yeah, whatever, Christina, yeah, 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 you know, drink my own coffee. Um, and then later on in that same coffee that I was having with her, I got this text message from my kids' GP practice. Um, this issue has now been resolved, by the way, but at the time, I could not get them to list my husband as the primary parent. Um, and so, you know, whenever he made an appointment for them, the con- confirming your appointment, hit yes if you're coming tomorrow and hit no if you're not, was always sent to me. 
And I was just like, oh my God, how hard is it to accept that a man could be the primary carer and actually be the person who takes... And she's like, that's a really funny story. You should write about that. And I'm like, really? I haven't picked up a pen in you know, 20 years. And she's like, no, just write it down. She didn't know that I'd ever written at this point or that I had any interest in writing. Um, I was like, oh, maybe, whatever. And I went home and you know, I was a bit bored a couple of days later. I'm like, oh, I might write something. And so anyway, I wrote it and I sent it to Christina. I'm like, what do you think? She's like, Fuck, this is really good. And so she sent it off to her editor, Women's Gender, and they published it. And it was quite widely read, um, including by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. And I was like, wow, okay, this is pretty cool. It's, it is actually possible to have impact. Um, and so that's that's when I started writing. I'm pretty... I think, I think you've got to have your eyes wide open when you go into spaces such as this. Um, I think it is very easy to... Because, you know, you get a huge ego boost, right? When when people, you write something and people read it and they share it and they tell you that you're amazing, you know, that, that comes with a huge ego boost. And I, I would be dishonest if I didn't say that. The danger then becomes if you if that's what you're chasing and if that if if fame is what you're looking for out of this um and so my absolute line in the sand from fair because my very cynical husband was like well why are you doing this i'm like well because you know sometimes issues have a different perspective and blah 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 and he's like you just want to be famous i'm like i don't want to be famous i don't even like people i don't want to talk to people like god i don't want people to know my name he's like but why are you writing i'm like because because I, I think that there's a different perspective. So in that way, uh, by challenging my motivations around this, the, the line that I've, a hard line that I have drawn is, I only write about things that interest me. I only write about things that I think are important. I only write about things where I think that I can contribute to a conversation in a way where someone else has not contributed and I'm not seeking fame. And so what that means is that if there is nothing that meets those criteria, just don't write anything. So sometimes months will go by between my writing a piece. Sometimes I write something and I read it and I go, that eh, doesn't meet those criteria and I just delete it. Um, I don't send it off. You know, my editors and women's agenda are amazing. They, they publish most of what I send them. Um, and so really it's up to me to draw my own boundaries. Um, there are lots of avenues in which I think doctors can contribute um, not just our own specialty areas because we are you know yes I'm a plastic surgeon and yes I'm a hand surgeon and yes I really really like treating you know the joint at the very tips of your fingers like but I'm still a doctor and I still have a perspective on public health I still have I still have a unique it's what I was saying before about you know, your greatest asset is your patients. You see this cross-section of society. And so if there is a public health issue, like COVID, for example, we do have a unique perspective on how it's affecting normal people that we see day to day. Um, and their worries, their fears. You get this insight that perhaps, for example, politicians don't. Um, and so, so for me, I think it's important... Um, I don't see this as an exclusive space. I don't want to be the only doctor who writes or or appears on, you know, opinion shows on TV or any of those kinds of things. I think that there is space for everyone. I think that the more space we create for each other, um, 
the more likely it is that the media and society more broadly will think that those opinions are, are important. And I don't even think we have to agree with each other publicly. I think that some of the the public disagreement around um, strategies for COVID, for example, I think that's actually really representative of how we do science. It's, you know, we, we disagree in MDTs when it comes to a single patient's care. Why wouldn't we disagree on, you know, what PPE should be used or, or what vaccine the country should buy? You know, I think we should be con contributing to these conversations. So, um, so I think that's good. I think media, there's not enough time in this podcast to really talk about media, but I think media is complex and tricky and potentially dangerous and so um i've 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 been burnt uh and i i think caution um when dealing i it's very different when i write something um and even if i work with an editor before it is actually put in the paper at the end of the day that is my unfiltered words if i go on a show like the drum it's not edited it's you know the entire context is provided but when you talk to journalists, um, it, that's very different because you are a witness. You're not there. They're necessarily, they're not going to be your spokesperson. They're actually interrogating you. And so therefore the potential for a single sentence to be taken out of context or for your opinion to not be given in the correct way, the risks are greater. Do you think one of the answers, potential answers to that is social media because you can you know in fact put directly what you think straight onto your own profile yeah i think social media is a really interesting thing um, i've seen really wonderful things through social media um, our entire kids off nauru campaign was predominantly coordinated through um, doctors groups on social media um, with huge huge impact um, so i think social media is great it, it forges connections that didn't exist one of my dearest friends i met on social media one of the a couple of the specialists that i refer to regularly um, i met on social media um, so you know it's I, I think that it's great i think it also has dark corners potential issues um, risks problems and so uh, yeah I, I think the use of it you've got to be a little bit careful any top tips for our maybe medical students junior doctors on social media um medicine in this country is minuscule um if one of the things that i learned through some of my advocacy is we are two degrees of separation from anyone in this country. I remember there was a bit in the Kids Off Nauru campaign where this message filtered back from Canberra and the people who were who were really advocating um, for to, to get the kids off and for various political parties and politicians to advocate for that and support that campaign. Um, there was a call came back that they a particular politician really needed to be convinced that this was an issue his constituents cared about so did we have a doctor in this particular electorate who could call his office and let them know that this was something that was important in the next hour please and we did we found three people who lived in this remote 
obscure electorate uh, in a random corner of this country um, to call that electorate office and it got up so and and you know these were phone numbers that you know do you know someone who lives here I know someone who lives there can I get their phone number can I call them okay done yep so two degrees of separation so my tip for medical students and doctors using social media is whatever you say your colleagues will see it your patients will see it your bosses will see it your employer will see it um, and even when you know I, I, I admin a couple of um, doctors Facebook groups and when people you know say can I write this post anonymously asking for advice about this particular scenario we spend a lot of time with them trying to remove every last skerrick of identifiable information and even then I will get DMs from other doctors to say, I know exactly who you're talking about because I work in that hospital and there are enough clues in that story. Um, so yes, it, this, there's 100,000 of us in this country and we all know each other. So you've uh, led nicely into what I was going to ask you next, which was the Kids Off Nauru campaign. Um, a really, as you said, massively powerful campaign uh, a shining example of the social justice that doctors can really advocate for. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about and the work that you did. Um, so Sarah Townend uh, should be congratulated for most of that. Um, she she is a GP in Sydney who um, also does some work at a at a institution called Bear Cottage, uh, which is a um, palliative care facility for dying children. So that in and of itself should tell you what an, an amazing human Sarah is. Um, in about June of 2018, there was a, a man who was being held in Nauru who, um, I believe he had a lung cancer um, and required palliative treatment and there was no palliative treatment available. Um, and Sarah read a newspaper article about that, sitting in her car and burst into tears and wrote a letter. Um, and she wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister to say that man should be transferred and a couple of thousand people signed it and, uh, and eventually the man was brought to Australia. Um, the, and you know, that story has lots of complexities. Um, you know, he was brought to Australia but he was put into closed detention. So this is, you know, it's an example of, you know, we, we all feel warm and fuzzy about Sarah's story but, but the reality is did she make his life worse rather than better? Don't know. Really complicated. Um, and these are some of the issues that we've we've since grappled with with a lot of these refugee issues. But the the issue at the heart of that is, um, I'm not sure, Sarah. I don't want to speak for her. I don't know if she would write that letter again. But one of the things that we have learnt in the intervening years is that you don't want to advocate for a third party without their permission because you don't. For us it might be very clear what someone wants but for them you know maybe maybe he would have preferred to spend his last days in the community in Nauru looking at the ocean than in closed detention in Australia with some morphine who knows don't know um so that's that's a that's a complex issue um but anyway at that point she then um got onto the radar of the refugee sector um and the sector is every issue has its own sector 
it's usually a combination of organisations, often who have been working for a long time in that space. They might be um, advocacy organisations, so they're trying to shift policy. They might be operational organisations um, that actually provide direct care, like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Um, there might be legal organisations. So it can be a whole lot of people. Um, so, so she came into the, the radar of the refugee sector, and so she started doing some health assessments. And then that's when the kids started getting really sick and it became very clear that they were not doing well. And the reason for their sickness was is complicated. Um, obviously years and years of, of uh, detention, no hopes for resettlement, their parents' coping ability starts to decrease as time goes by. And then the big thing that happened in 2018 was everyone was very hopeful of resettlement and then uh, uh, a presumed hopeful deal with the US fell through so a whole bunch of people who thought they'd be able to go to the US weren't able to not the thing to remember is that none of these people specifically want to come to Australia or specifically want to go to they just don't want to be in detention anymore they just want to be in a community where they can get on with their lives they can finish their education they can get a job they can you know live and so so the parents got more distressed the kids got more distressed and they developed what um, has come to be called resignation syndrome where basically they just they just withdrew within themselves. They weren't eating, they weren't drinking. Um, it was all pretty awful. Um, and the government was not making any uh, moves to bring these children to a place where appropriate medical care could be provided. Um, and so the sector banded together to launch a campaign um, to get the kids off Nauru. Um, and, you know, it was a really hard campaign for lots of other refugees. So the, the predominantly adult men on Manus Island at the time, you know, they, they, they all, they, they, they thought it was important to get the kids off Nauru, but it was also really hard for them because there was no advocacy campaign for them and they were still stuck there. So, so all of these campaigns have problems and victims, but, as part, but, but these kids were literally about to die. You know, there were kids being intubated on the tarmac at Australian airports when they, when they finally got here, multi-organ failure, needing dialysis. It was, it was dreadful. Um, and so, uh, so the sector decided that they needed medical support, that doctors, because doctors are not powerful, but they hold a lot of respect uh, in society. And when doctors say that something is wrong, then people listen. Um, and so they wanted doctors to get involved. And so Sarah was convinced to write another open letter. I had never met Sarah at this point. In fact, I'd never spoken to Sarah at this point. And she sent me a DM on Twitter, of all things, one day out of the blue, it was Friday afternoon, I was operating, saying, Neela, can you call me? There might be an opportunity to make some huge changes in the refugee space. Um, and so the thing that she was trying to put together was she was trying to garner support from all of the medical colleges for this campaign. And so her question to me was, do you know the president of the College of Surgeons and can you call him? And I said, no, I don't, but I'll see what I can do. Um, I don't even know why I said that. I, I could have just said no. But, but I was like, oh, this is, I've always cared about refugee rights. Um, I've always thought that it that this is a massive injustice in this country. Um, and I think it just spoke to me. Uh, I had not been involved in refugee work at all at that point, but for some reason it just kind of spoke to me. And I'm like, yep. And so anyway, I got, I got put in charge of speaking to RACS and the anaesthetic college. Um, and 
uh, anyway, so, and then she's like, I'm writing this letter, and I'm like, do you want me to help you write this letter? And uh, we, we, we did this letter in crazy place. I took my kids to walk the three capes in Tasmania, and we were editing this letter. Like, I was hunched on a helipad at 10 o'clock at night because that was the only place I could get enough phone reception to work on this bloody letter. Um, and anyway, so we, we launched the letter. So Sarah went to Canberra and delivered the letter. Um, and the Prime Minister's office refused to accept it. And I got really angry. I walked around to Adam Bant's office. He's my local MP. And I'm like, this is terrible. We've got this campaign. No one's listening. Blah, blah. Um, and so his staff was like, this is really interesting. Uh, anyway, he called me about an hour later. And he's like, can you get me a copy of the letter and all the signatures? Email it to me right now. Anyway, Adam read it out in Parliament so that it was... Uh, in the Hansard record at that point, even though the Prime Minister's office wouldn't accept it. And I'm watching this at home. Um, Christina, my journalist friend, came over to like hold my hand as all of this is going on. And she's like, this is amazing. I'm like, what's Hansard? I had no idea. Um, we were so politically naive. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, and then, you know, I, I ran into this school mum at a kid's birthday party and she's like, oh, open letters don't work. You actually just need to get people to, you know, actually contact their MPs so we launched this letter writing campaign I, I had this goal that we were going to get one doctor in every electorate in the country to write to their MP and we got to about I don't know, 80 or 90 percent of electorates in this country thousands of letters got sent um, and so Labor then came out very strongly in support of the kids off Nauru um, movement um, kids the kids were so sick so they all got they all got brought to Australia but then that was the point at which Karen Phelps had um, won office and so she has cared about refugee issues for a very very long time and so the sector approached her to say well look you know these kids were dying for a long time we shouldn't have needed a public advocacy campaign to get them off Nauru um, and so she proposed the Medivac bill and that was backed by Labor and it was passed against the government um, they filibustered at the end of the sitting year in uh, 2018, so it actually got passed the following year. And all it did is it laid out a framework. It just said that if two doctors think that someone is sick and that care is not available where they are, then that patient should be transferred and the minister can't block that. Which is what, uh, not just the minister, but the, the whole bureaucracy of home affairs. Um, but there was no framework to implement it. There was no funding. There was no nothing. So again, the sector got together and Sarah and Nat uh, started working with them. And then I got brought in as well. And so we we brought together a lot of doctors from around the country um, to uh, conduct telehealth assessments. And there's been a lot of rhetoric about refugee advocates who, um, you know, made up diagnoses. The one response I would say to that is my role in that was recruiting doctors and assigning them to cases, not specifically assigning them to cases, but being involved in those early stages. And almost every single person I recruited, particularly in the early days, um, called me up after they did their first assessment and said, Neela, I assumed it was bad, but I had no idea it was this bad. Every single one, one after another, you know, professors uh, down to recently fellow GPs, every single person, you know, they would call me to cry, to debrief, to, you know, to tell me about these awful, awful, awful things. And and that's that would be my response to uh, 
uh, as advocates, we gave them a free ticket into this country. It was, it would be to say, it was it was horrendous. Um, and then, of course, you know, they got brought here and locked up in detention for you know another eighteen months. Um, and again, I think this goes to the heart of of advocacy as a wonderful but problematic thing um, because where they were was dangerous where they got brought was not that much better um, they did get some medical care some people got some medical care and even though we're not directly responsible um, we're not responsible for Medivac being what it was. We're not responsible for participating in the program and we're not responsible for what the government chose to do with those people when they, they got brought here. It's really complicated. So for anyone who wants to do this sort of work, I would say two things. The first is for every issue, there is already a sector. There is already people who are working in that space, who are experts in that space, who know things about context um, that nobody else knows. Whether that's saving koalas or, you know, um, refugee advocacy. There's a sector for everything. So what I would say is don't just start up your own charity or organisation. Just strike off into, you know, the sunset on your own. You know, find out who's involved and who's doing what and work with them. Uh, and the second thing I would say is for stuff that's really high risk like this, um, we had a bioethicist involved in day one to talk through the issues of recognising that the bill itself is problematic, um, that it might not achieve the goals that were intended and the ethical issues around engaging with it and our responsibility to the patients and and all of the complex issues around it and so um, and we actually had a couple of meetings with that ethicist through the year as as the landscape shifted just to make sure that um, we were doing things as well as they could be done it's certainly a fascinating story and as you mentioned a really powerful example of advocacy as you also alluded to, the problem isn't exactly fixed. What can we in particular, you know, young medical people, junior doctors, even non-medical people do in this space to continue to push the momentum and, and push for change? Um, at a very macro level, um, anti-racism is important. Uh, because that's ultimately what this comes down to. Our borders are closed, uh, our refugees are locked up because of this racist rhetoric that these people jump the queue, they're dangerous, they're going to take jobs from Australians, you know, whatever it is. It's, you know, racism wins votes and that's, that's the core issue here. And so I'm going to say this in a really non-judgmental non-accusatory sort of way but for you as example as a white man you are going to get privileges that you don't even notice you're getting and so what i think that 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 comes with a responsibility to learn as much as you can about the privileges that are denied others 
and speak up for them when you observe these kinds of things actually happening because it's really hard to speak up in those moments you know when when the patient says but I don't want that African doctor it's really hard it's much easier to say that person is in a vulnerable position because they're sitting in emergency and they're a bit scared and so therefore it's okay they're probably not a racist on a day-to-day basis but that's okay but the problem is that injures that African doctor who who heard that and I, I I do think you know that's not to say kick the patient out and don't treat them but I think there is there are ways to gently correct those perceptions um, you know even a simple why people often will say things that are racist because they've never been challenged on it before and actually making it clear that you can't just get away with making a statement you have to justify it as soon as it's, it's much harder to say, I don't want that doctor who has black skin than it is to say, because I don't think they're as intelligent as white people. Because that that's clearly crossing a line into racism. And people kind of, when they say these racist things, they hide their racism. And so just, you know, sometimes a simple why is enough to go, ah, oh, actually. And then you can lead into, I'm really sorry, that's, that's not how we operate at this hospital that is you know that's what so and so is a valued member of team however you want to address it um not being a racist isn't enough not isn't enough um not being a racist isn't anti-racism if that makes sense simply passively not being a racist is you know you're a nice bloke that that that's fine you know or a nice woman or whatever um but to actually be anti-racist you've got to understand what the issues are you've got to understand why there is a um, a health gap for aboriginal people for example you've got to understand why um, the context in which refugees come you've got to understand why it's hard for people to communicate in our patients clinic and not just get frustrated with them so so there's lots of complexities to that but broadly what I would say is that the more actively uh, I'll give you an example Um, a friend sent me a text message of a screenshot of something that was said in a social media channel earlier today and and her message to me was oh my god what's wrong with these people and it was you know it's a doctor's group everyone there is a doctor and it was talking about um used safety equipment and someone was saying oh my gosh charities in australia won't take this used safety equipment because it might not be safe i hate sending it to landfill why can't we send it to third world countries at least they'd be able to use it it's a dreadful thing to say like why would you give something that's unsafe to a kid in a third world country it's not if it's not safe here it's not safe over there and and this is you know I'm just like oh my god and she's like these people are doctors why don't they take time to educate themselves about these issues so it's really easy to be accidentally a real jerk like that's a real jerk thing to do but most people wouldn't even blink at it um so so I think that if people really worked hard to be inclusive um, that wouldn't solve the whole issue not by any stretch but I think that that would be a good start and then the second thing I guess is not everyone can fight every issue you know I, I care deeply about the environment 
I go to the odd rally, but apart from that, I don't do much more because all of my time and capacity is in other areas. And so I think if you find a, a, a my dream would be for every clinician to find a social justice issue that mattered to them and do something for it. Um, doesn't matter what it could be to donate money, could be to donate time, could be to run advocacy, could be anything. But instead of just, you know, working in a public hospital isn't your social justice obligation ticked off. That's, you know, that some people act like that. Um, I, I think that people can do a little bit more. The final in the theme of social justice um, thing that I want to just touch on, you mentioned before about your work with the women's agenda. Tell us a little bit about the work that they do and, and how you help support that. Um, so so Women's Agenda are great. They are a female-owned, female-run, um, small media organisation. Um, they have an online platform. They, uh, I remember the first time I met them, I, I assumed that there was an enormous team of people and it's literally like three women behind a computer who get content, write content, put on courses, put on awards, do, do a whole bunch of stuff um, and it, they are they're, they're a media outlet you know in the same way that you know Channel 9 is a media outlet um, they are journalists they um, produce news stories but their angle is um, their target audience is professional women um, and I think that reading about what is happening for professional women um, is actually really important for people in medicine, um, specifically women, but I think everyone, um, because it uh, we're so regressive when it comes to so many things. You know, I often joke about how we are the industry that still carries pages, but when we when we talk about labour rights, employment rights, um, part time training. Um, all sorts of things that most other professional industries just take for granted you know like you know the law, my lawyer friends from debating were just announcing that they were going to have six months of maternity leave and you know three or four months of that would be paid at a time when i was like oh crap i'm pregnant oh maybe i'll get thrown off the training program and in actual fact my physician's colleagues were literally being told that they were going to be kicked off the training program because they were having babies in training and so it's we we just we are such a regressive industry and i think it's nice to have that slightly global picture of what is happening in the corporate world because it takes us out of our silo and it makes us realize that how regressive we are and where the next direction is for change. Because I think as an industry, it'll be very hard to leapfrog past other industries, but at the very least, we can push to keep up. I also do want to ask about, you mentioned um, your um, manuscript about healthcare on a knife's edge. Um, which you, you did say was shortlisted for a Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Congratulations. When can we have a read? Uh, oh, who knows? Um, it is... Oh, I was gobsmacked that that was, that was shortlisted. I, I, I almost didn't send it in for the award. I, I, I had thought I would enter it, but really for me it was just a 
time point to rewrite it. I, I'd written a first draft, it was dreadful. Um, I'd shown it to a publisher, I can't believe they read it. Um, they had, I'd had a meeting with them and they had been very, very encouraging and I'm very grateful to that support from that particular publisher. They said, come back with a new draft and you know, it was COVID and it was all, so, so I had that meeting at the very start of 2020 and then the world went to pieces. Um, and so I just got to a point where I was like, I've got to finish this thing. And so I set myself as the deadline for entry to the competition is my, I want to get this draft done. Uh, and I got it done, well, no, um, I got it done on the Friday and then I sent it to my sister and she read it in like four hours or something. She's amazing. And she called me up on the Saturday morning as I'm lying in bed going, yes, I got it done. I can send it off at some point this weekend. And she said, your ending's crap. It just doesn't work anymore. Like, because there had been some structural changes with characters and things like that. She's like, it's just, um, what was the word she used? I can't quite remember. It was a really mean word, uh, but it was true. Um, and she's like, you've just got to do something with that. I'm like, shit. So I rewrote the last five chapters in a weekend um, and I sent it off completely gobsmacked to be shortlisted and that has now that a lot of good things have come out of that I've I've ended up signing with a literary agent um who Melanie Ostell who who's been a publisher for many years herself and what she provides not just representation to publishers but also editorial advice so right before Christmas I had a meeting with her which went for 90 minutes and she spent 89 minutes telling me the myriad ways in which it sucked uh, and then the last minute saying that she was willing to take me on, um, which was lovely. So I've spent the last um, couple of months making changes as per her advice. And then hopefully it'll go to some publishers and hopefully somebody will pick it up. And then hopefully about a year later, it'll get published. Amazing. Looking forward to it. Neela, you're certainly a shining example, not only of reaching the pinnacle in surgery, but also keeping up the many hobbies that you describe advocating for change, improving the lives of others, um, pursuing social justice. Um, so I think you provide a lot of great examples and stories for our listeners today. As a parting question, what's one lesson you learned throughout your training, medical or non-medical, that you can pass on to our listeners? Medicine isn't everything. Um, it's wonderful. It has lots of great things. It can be intellectually stimulating. It can be all sorts of stuff but family, friendship, connection, um, contribution, value, worth, all of those things sit outside of medicine. And, you know, most people who become doctors, whether it's our selection bias or, or just, you know, a matter of who's drawn to it, are really smart people. And across the board smart people get bored and in a lot of ways you don't actually have to be that smart to be a doctor um, this is where I think sometimes our selection is flawed um, because what we do is pattern recognition it's quite repetitive and you get to a point where you get very good at it it's kind of what I was saying you know now I'm at a point with my surgical competence whereas there's not that much that challenges me anymore and so you know I've I've found interest in music and writing and advocacy and other people buy fast cars and have affairs and that's what happens when humans get bored and so what I would say is even if it feels like medical school is all consuming and it feels like 
your junior doctor years and um, training is all consuming fight being consumed by it because you can be a good doctor and not be consumed in fact the best doctors i know do things outside of medicine thanks so much for that lesson nila and thanks so much for your time and appearing on our show it's been great to chat to you no thank you This episode of The Time Out was brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. Don't forget to subscribe to The Time Out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know on Facebook or Twitter if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show at TTO Podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.